0: My name is Caterina Dallacoura. I am an Associate Professor in International Relations at the International Relations Department of LSE. And I will be chairing uh, the event tonight. Filippo Dionigi was a PhD student in the Department of International Relations. Indeed, he was my student. And um, I'm very proud that he continues to be our colleague at LSE as he is a, a Hume Early Career Fellow in the Middle East Center here. His current work is on the impact of the Syrian refugee crisis on Arab statehood from a comparative perspective. In addition, Filippo is leading on a capacity building project in collaboration with the Tunis Business School of Tunis University building uh, Capacity sort of uh, the Department on International Relations, he has a number of publications, but his first book, Hezbollah, Islamist Politics and International Society, is what he will be discussing today. I have to say, even though I supervised the thesis, it has been uh, changed and uh, added on and enriched and revised for publication. With Palgrave Macmillan. And I was struck when I was looking at it uh, just before coming in here by how, even looking at the contents, the table of contents, how rich, dense, and interesting, how substantial uh, they all sound. There's been a lot of hard work, detailed hard work, and interesting new research that has gone into this book. Filippo will speak for about 45 minutes. And then we're going to have a question and answer session. I'd like you to please uh, silence your phones. And also, I'm asked to let you know that if you want to uh, tweet about the event, the hashtag is at uh, LSC Dionigi. The book is on sale. If you're interested, at thirty-one pounds fifty with a fifty percent discount. Uh, we can start straight away because the room is full. This is a great turnout. And, Filippo, over to you. Thank you.
1: Um, well, thank you uh, uh, to all of you for being here. Uh, this uh, this is a truly impressive turnout. I'm uh, almost intimidated, I must say. Uh, but uh, first of all, I have to thank uh, uh, Dr. Dalakura for being available to chair this event. Um, she has been uh, um, hearing about this subject quite a, uh, a few times, and I'm um, uh, really impressed about the fact that she wants to. She was available to do this one more time again. Um, and secondly, but no less importantly, I have to thank uh, the Middle East Center for. Uh, um, for being available to host this event as, as well, and 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 taking the risk um, of hosting such a young and unexperienced scholar, uh, um, which is rather unusual for uh, such a distinguished institution. Now, um, as Katerina was saying, I, the, 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 um, my PhD and now the book that I published is rather. Um, it's, I believe it's rather complex and goes uh, into quite some detail uh, with regard to uh, many aspects. So it's, it's rather challenging to wrap this up in, in 40, 45 minutes. I'll do my best uh, to give you an overview of its content, um, also because the price is very high. So this is your opportunity to get uh, some some access to the content otherwise. Um, and And... On this basis, I I just want to let you know that this has been the result of a research that has taken place uh, in in four years, between 2008 and 2012. Um, The events that took place, especially uh, from mid-2011 on, uh, and events in Syria, unfortunately, are not included, uh, and and, uh, would deserve a lot of research, of course. Uh, I think the time is not ready yet for that kind of research, but uh, I hope nonetheless that my work will have... Uh, will be an opportunity for those of you who would like to engage with it to also understand what's going on uh, more recently uh, in this region. Um, the main objective of this study has been to investigate uh, to what extent uh, international norms uh, influence Islamist politics. Uh, in particular, I've tried to uh, critically assess how uh, international norms and Islamist movements interact and what kind of consequences these processes uh, of interaction have uh, for Islamism and Islamist movements, uh, rather in general. Um, In order to do so, what I've done is uh, developing a theoretical framework, first of all, uh, for the analysis on the basis of which I argue that Islamism can be considered uh, a form of communitarianism. And then, subsequently, I carry out an exercise of critical assessment uh, through uh, what what methodologists would call a least likely single case study. Uh, based on four main examples which I will present uh, in the next uh, minutes in this talk now the main point, and just let me clarify this since the beginning, uh, that I would like to advance tonight, is that um, if we understand Islamism as a form of communitarianism and, and I will explain why we should do so in a few minutes, then and this is my main claim, we can detect a significant change in its underpinning conceptions of person and community which is at least in part due to increasing influence of international norms in Islamist politics. So the claims of my study can can basically be summarized in three main, let's say, statements. The first one would be that, uh, that international norms facilitate the development of a conception of the Islamic community within Islamism as embedded into the broader normative framework of international politics, and therefore these norms challenge the idea of an isolated and self-referential Islamic community alien to international norms. The second aspect that I try to highlight uh, in my research um, is the advancement of a conception of person which is different from the so-called integral Muslim self uh, which is common in Islamist theory. Instead, international norms may have the effect of producing a more general and universalized sense of belonging that includes membership to certain ideas, uh, uh, to a certain idea of the Islamic Ummah, but also embeds the Muslim identity into a form of allegiance to a universal sense of humanity. And then the third aspect, which is more specifically relevant from the the point of view of IR theory, of international relations theory, is that uh, the interaction between international norms and Islamist movements can be conceptualized from the point of view of constructivist IR theory in particular, as a form of international socialization, which operates through the inclusion of Islamist movements into international society, throughout their their engagement with international actors such as states, the UN, uh, and diplomatic missions, but also through practice of war, unfortunately. So with these three main points in mind, let us go through in more detail on how I substantiate the validity of my study, or at least I try to do so. I have decided I will not take too much advantage of, of, of your patience and, uh, and therefore I skim rather quickly through uh, the more theoretical aspects of my study. So I will not go into detail on why I think that Islamism can be considered as, as a form of communitarianism, uh, but for the sake of conciseness and clarity anyway, uh, I will only say that communitarianism is uh, an influential uh, school of thought that emerged um, prominently in the mid-80s, uh, in Western political theory, especially in response to a, a major publication in 1971 by John Rawls, A Theory of Justice. Um, it, it is an enormously interesting deepet and a very long one, uh, about which uh, so much has been published that you cannot, cannot even imagine, probably, but thousands thousands of pages, and I reviewed this deepet uh, rather superficially in my book, but still, um, I believe it's worth mentioning. Uh, as, I believe it's still worth using it as, as an interpretative framework for what Islamism is. And I claim in particular, you know, communitarians, as, as alasdair McIntyre, Michael Sandel, and Charles Tyler, and the list could go on and on, in different way, um, I claim that the assumptions of liberal political theory are scarcely, are scarcely realistic, they basically fail to constitute a sound basis for the universal validity of liberalism and therefore the universal validity of international norms, which very much are influenced by liberalism anyway. Based on this analysis um, I, 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 of Western communitarianism, I then move on uh, and try to discuss the foundation of Islamist political thought. I understand this may sound bizarre. I'm not the first, the first one who does that, of course. There is a, an excellent work by uh, Roxane Ubin, for example, that has done something similar in this respect. Um, And in this respect, basically, I analyze the uh, foundation of Islamist political theory with reference to four key thinkers that I choose rather arbitrarily, but I still believe that they're entirely representative of the Islamist tradition. The first one is Mohammed Abdu, the Egyptian thinker. The second one uh, is Said Qutb, who who uh, who was one of the uh, leading uh, um, and inspiring voices for the Muslim Brotherhood at some point um, in the 50s and the 60s in Egypt again. And then the third one is, uh, rather perhaps uh, unusual choice, is Muhammad Bakir al-Sadr, uh, who is an Iraqi Shia intellectual, uh, whom I believe is extremely influential, but very much neglected, unfortunately. And then the fourth one, rather unoriginally, is Ruhollah Khomeini, of course, Imam Khomeini. I establish in my work an analogy, not much with reference to what Islamists and, and, and communitarians say on how a society should be or should be looking like. They obviously think different ways. They come from different traditions and different historical contexts. But what I think is common between communitarianism and Islamism is their conception of person and their conception of community. They all think that persons and community, and community in particular, the moral community, should be the foundation of certain uh, political, of the political institutions. This is different from the uh, from the liberal tradition, however, that thinks that foundations of political institutions and international norms is is based uh, on on some 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 kind of idea of a universal reason. Um, both Islamists and communitarians claim that the legitimacy of norms and political institutions should regulate our society and international society uh, and and the legitimacy can only be derived not by an abstract use of an allegedly universal reason and instead political institutions uh, to be legitimate they must reflect the moral tradition of the community to which the person belongs to and let me give you just two examples for the sake of clarity the first one is from Abdu Uh, and Abdu in one of his uh, uh, um, essays uh, describing the, uh, concerning the Egyptian society, uh, for example, it claims, and I quote, that like all Eastern nations, Egypt constituted a religious community bounded, bounded together by the Sharia. It had built its ethics and civilization on religion. Religion is the organizing principle of all its affairs. Moral conduct will disappear when, all, when, when religion collapses. The same thing will happen if religion is deformed by, introduc- by introducing into its core any innovations or superstitions. The nation will be weakened. End of quote. And then another example from Khomeini when he says, obviously with a little bit more vehemence of course, all non-Islamic systems of government are systems of kufr, are systems of apostasy. Since the rules in each case is an instance of taghut, of, of tyranny, and it's our duty, our duty of Muslims, of course, to remove from the life of Muslim society all traces of kufr and destroy them. It is also our duty to create a favorable social environment for the, educational, for the education of believing and virtuous individuals, an environment that is in total contradiction with that produced by the rule of the taghut and illegitimate power. So the idea is that the moral community, the moral, the, the moral community of Islam is the only legitimate foundation of legitimate political institutions. That's how I establish an analogy between communitarianism and, 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 and Islamism in that sense. And there could be many uh, other examples. There is, side, for, with regard to side, Kutub I discussed the, the concept of Jahili, of course. And with regard to Bakir Sadra, illustrate how his criticism of individualism, and in particular liberal capitalist individualism, uh, are in fact uh, uh, very similar to the ways communitarians articulate a criticism of, 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 of liberalism in Western political theory. Uh, And I could go on and on, but obviously uh, we have a a limit in terms of time, and I also have a limit in terms of with your patience, I understand. Um, At this point, so having established basically this analogy between communitarianism and, and Islamism, what I do is to use this kind of analogy as an interpretative framework to then study specifically the case of Hezbollah. So I enter in the core of my inquiry, and I ask whether in an international political context in which, uh, um, which is increasingly, I would say, influenced uh, by international norms as human rights, international humanitarian law, international multilateral institutions like the UN, again, uh, which are all deeply influenced by liberal assumption, is Islamism as a political project still a tenable stance How do international norms interact with Islamist movements and which effect they have on their assumptions about community and personhood with regard to what was my uh, premises and my my introduction with regard to Islamism as communitarianism. And here I turn to the more uh, empirical study uh, of Hezbollah, which which I take as a leading example of Islamism. Uh, Hezbollah in its early phase, uh, we are, say, in the uh, early 80s, early mid-80s, uh, Hezbollah, therefore, in its early phase, fully epitomize, uh, the, uh, epitomizes the Islamist political trend of thinkers such as Khalid Qutub, Bakir al-Sadr, and Khomeini. Uh, one example for all, in the 1985 uh, open letter to the downtrodden of Lebanon and the world, which is uh, the main uh, and the first document that Hezbollah has announced publicly, um, it is possible, just reading this text, to establish direct right connection between the open letter and the political thought of, thinkers, uh, of the thinkers that I've mentioned. So, for example, the concept of Jahiliya is mentioned here and there as, as a key concept of the political theory, of the, of the political project of Hezbollah itself. Of um, and then Khomeini uh, is quoted extensively, rather unsurprisingly, probably. And then Muhammad Bakir al-Sadr, towards the end, for example, is mentioned as as a paradigm martyr, uh, as a key thinker, as the foundation uh, of of Hezbollah's political uh, project, political and military project, of course. Now, in various parts of the text. Uh, the Hezbollah's Islamism and, and the communitarian foundations are clear. So, for example, at one point, there are a couple of lines which are just uh, so obvious, in which, he, in which the document says that the main sources of our culture, and I'm quoting, are the, venerable, uh, are the venerable Quran and the infallible Sunnah. And the decisions and fatwas made by the faqih and the Marj al the Faqih is the Wal al in, uh, uh, in Iran, in the Islamic Republic, uh, just recently established at the time, and the Marja Taklid, again, it uh, will be complex to explain it now, but fundamentally is at the top of the hierarchy uh, in, Shiite, in Shia uh, um, uh, religious belief uh, and uh, religious organization. Therefore, as well epitomizes the case of the Islamist movement, uh, but its activity, year after year, and this is, what, uh, this is another key aspect, uh, is increasingly ex- exposed to the influence of international norms and international political actors in general. So I consider four cases uh, in which I try to highlight the way Hezbollah interacts with international norms and international actors. The first one uh, that I consider in my book refers to the 1996 conflict between Hezbollah and Israel, uh, or Lebanon and Israel, if you prefer. Um, there is no time, unfortunately, obviously, to go into the detail and the historical detail of, uh, uh, of an extremely complex um, uh, Conflicts such as the uh, Lebanese-Israeli conflict and the Hezbollah-Israeli conflict. Uh, but it will be sufficient to say for now that uh, in 1996, a major uh, military confrontation erupted uh, between uh, Israel uh, and, the, and the then uh, a, a knowledge resistance in Lebanon, uh, of which Hezbollah was the most prominent component, of course, not the only one, by the way. And the operation uh, was later to be known officially, according to uh, the Israeli uh, military records, uh, Operation Grapes of Wrath. Um, and during this escalation, uh, a serious incident happened. Um, a, um, some, troops from, uh, some troops of the Israeli army uh, basically uh, were hit by fire, uh, shot by Hezbollah, apparently by Hezbollah troops, um, apparently shot very closely to a UN compound of the UN peacekeeping missions that is currently uh, operating in South, Le- uh, South Lebanon. It's called UNIFIL. And uh, the Israeli troops immediately called for rescue fire. Uh, the problem is that the rescue fire uh, not only targeted uh, the place where they, apparently the Hezbollah troops were uh, based, but also hit uh, the very close UN compound in which hundreds and hundreds uh, of Lebanese, of South Lebanese, were taking refuge at the time uh, during the conflict, because the conflict was raging quite uh, wildly already. And the, um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the operation has killed more than 100 uh, refugees in a few minutes. Uh, it was a complete disaster. Uh, and this is one thousand nine hundred and ninety six and is the time in which satellite TV, satellite TV, uh, television is becoming uh, um, more and more common, and information is traveling faster and faster and immediately uh, the, the news and the images that were uh, um, coming from this uh, from this event were, were, were immediately uh, they, they appeared immediately horrible and extremely violent and international diplomacy could not by condem- but condemn uh, this, uh, this incident as a consequence. Um, Uh, there was immediately, or immediately after, let's say, an international diplomatic initiative that took place uh, trying to uh, limit the consequences of this incident, at least, or trying to solve a call for a ceasefire or something like that. And the outcome of this process, which at the time was led by Warren Christopher uh, of the U.S., uh, the outcome of this process was an interesting uh, um, and rather bizarre thing, was uh, an understanding, a a document uh, that is written but not signed by parties, uh, but still uh, abided to anyway, uh, and the document was, uh, was then to be known as the April Understanding. Um, it was not the first time, to be honest, because also in April 1993, there was, there was an oral agreement that was similar, and the agreement, interestingly enough, established that the parties, basically, they could continue fighting each other, but they would do so in a more civilized manner. They would not target civilians uh, or civilian property. Um, and that's what happened. And Hezbollah became part of that ca- uh, of the, uh, of the agreement. Uh, from, from then on, the rules of the game, this is how themselves they call it, uh, have established that civilians, that the that, that that, that international norms of non-combatants immunity uh, would have been applied uh, to the conflict between, South, between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, and that's one case in which I basically discussed on how something that non-naturally not belongs to Islamic warfare uh, it's been introduced anyway in a conflict between uh, a jihadi movement uh, and it's an Islamist movement as Hezbollah and uh, Israel. Now, let me state uh, an important aspect. Uh, uh, that is Islamic warfare, in fact, does, have a, does, a, does appreciate a distinction between combatants and non combatants, but this is. Um, uh, problematic in the case of Israelis because there are uh, declarations both from Nasrallah but there are also declarations from Yusuf al-Qaradawi uh, who claims that in Israel there are no civilians and the reason for this is that uh, uh, in Israel uh, military service is compulsory for both men and women at a very young age so potentially anyone is a combatant according to this interpretation. And that basically, uh, according to the perspective of these thinkers, of these Islamist thinkers, means that basically that there are no civilians in Lebanon. So anyone uh, would be a legitimate target, again, according to this perspective. But the introduction of this new rule, the influence of international norms in this specific aspect, has introduced a new way of conceiving the enemy and basically tracing a minor distinction between uh, civilians and non-civilians. And this was one case, and there will be much more to say, of course, but I have to um, move on with the next example of course and the next example uh, is in a different context this time. Let us abandon the more military uh, context and consider um, the more domestic political context of Lebanon. In 1992 uh, Lebanon would hold the first ever uh, parliamentary elections uh, after the Taif agreement and the end of the 25 years uh, long uh, civil war um, and rather surprisingly perhaps um, Hezbollah decides to take part in these elections and runs with its own candidates, uh, organizes a, a proper electoral campaign, uh, and achieves a, a respectable results to an extent. It has to agree on some partitions with the other Shia movements in Lebanon, Amal. It has to make some uh, negotiations and so on. So it's a rather complex picture anyway. Uh, but what I was interested in is that, uh, what I found puzzling is that, look, this is the Islamist movements and again, you know, the Islamist movements would be those who recognize the legitimacy of political institutions only if they reflect Islamic principles, but, le- but, but at this point is interacting with political institutions in Lebanon, which at least in theory, they're all funded and derived from the liberal archetype of the democratic republic uh, and the parliamentary system and so on. And within this context, uh, you know, the, the, the people will be the sovereign and the legislation that is made is, is the legislation that is made in the parliament. Whereas in the Islamist context, sovereignty belongs to God and, and the legislation is the one that is written in the Quran. in theory. So how do you, how do you reconcile uh, this sort of, of contradiction and this sort of process uh, in which uh, two different ethical systems fundamentally interact? Uh, and where does the international norms come in, in here? They come in because what I've done basically was to look at a parliament and that's what happens also in Lebanon. A parliament also approves and ratifies international treaties uh, or, or approves measures that are uh, determined, for example, by human rights international tra- treaties to which Lebanon, by the way, is a party to. So, how was what was the kind of reaction? What kind of the kind of approach that Hezbollah's member of parliament had towards this specific legislation? And what I've done in this case was going to uh, the the uh, library of the Lebanese Parliament and then look for the. Uh, the the Mahadir, the uh, the proceedings of the conference of the of the parliamentary uh, sessions uh, in which this legislation was discussed, and then look uh, at the way uh, Hezbollah's members uh, have interacted with this legislation. Obviously, going there with the expectations as well. This is uh, an Islamist movement, and then. Uh, the way they should interact should be critical they should uh, say this is you know, they should go along with the usual lines this is not what we do here this is not our uh, ethical uh, commitment uh, this is incompatible with the way we see society, community and persons and so on and so on and then I looked and looked and looked and fundamentally there wasn't nothing in there and I spent a lot of time uh, and then and what, what the, kind of, the kind of criticism that they raised here and there was mostly procedural uh, oh, we shouldn't pay that high the salary of, of that organization, of that ministry, or, or something like that. But there was no trace of some sort of a, a fundamentalist and essentialist discourse or no, we are Muslims, we are different from the West, and so on. And so I was puzzled, and, and I tried to figure out why, why is this so. And, and the reason I found that was was quite sophisticated to an extent. I had a chance to have a, a, a very long uh, conversation with uh, with a delegate of Hezbollah in the in the Lebanese Parliament to ask him. So, what's, what's the kind of the decision-making process uh, that you adopt uh, when you when you have to decide on one on one law or another and so on? And he basically mentioned um, two main principles. The first one uh, is is a class is a classic uh, Islamist, but also Islamic to an extent uh, principle, uh, which is. Uh, which basically goes along the lines that we have to forbid evil uh, and then uh, allowing for what is permissible. Um, and that means that if you are a legislator, if you work uh, in the Lebanese parliament or whatever, what you have to do is to oppose any sort of legislation that, uh, that is haram, that is forbidden by, by, by uh, an Islamic interpretation of, uh, of the Quran or the Sunnah and so on and so on. Um, and I say, okay, fine, but then, you know, there, then there is plenty of legislation in the Lebanese parliament that you should not approve. You should not approve the Lebanese parliament itself because, because uh, that, that's, that's popular sovereignty. It's not a sovereignty of God and so on. And he say, well, yes, but uh, there is also another principle, which he mentioned as Tazahum, but then more generally refers, I believe, to, to, the, more, to the more general concept of, 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 um, Islamic, uh, of Islamic jurisprudence, uh, to, to the concept of Maslaha in general. Tazahum basically means to make comparisons and uh, uh, and to assess the uh, di- uh, comparatively the implications of certain certain choices. And this principle, interestingly enough, as 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 it is for the case of maslaha, allows to make decisions or to take that that, it, that it can be fundamentally inconsistent with Islamic uh, uh, decisions. Um, as far as the alternative is worse or, or can, can, can harm the interest of the Islamic community even more than what the decision you're uh, you making at that point would be, it's, 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 it's fundamentally a very pragmatic principle as far as overall, uh, you outbalance the benefit of some decision, even if it's not Islamic, then you go for that anyway. And that means as a, and that, the examples that, 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 that I was given were, some, to an extent, rather interesting. So, for example, the Lebanese parliament approves a lot of legislation on, on wine uh, and alcohol production and alcohol uh, marketing. Lebanon is a country that produces and consumes alcohol uh, uh, quite regularly. Is the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the wine is, uh, is not excellent, but well, maybe, maybe I haven't tried enough, but um, still um, interestingly if you if you visit the vineyard of Lebanon you will see there are many uh, women with a veil uh, working in it which is another sign of uh, uh, pragmatism but nonetheless um, so so so, there, so we and, and the person who was giving this me example you know and we we, we have tried to uh, um, you know to oppose to an extent to this legislation but then and here comes uh, in my opinion the second principle but then we assess we we have to preserve the plurality of this society and the fact that, after all, the well-being of the Lebanese society uh, may be more important than enforcing a radical principle of non-production, of opposition to any production or marketing uh, of wine or any way alcoholic product products within Lebanon. And so we didn't care, after all, very much. Yes, we said we don't agree, but then the law was approved anyway by majority principle in the parliament. Uh, but it's not that we left the parliament or anything. They, they just... Uh, they just went along with this. Another example was with gambling. For example, Lebanon has a casino, the Casino du Liban, uh, which is, which is, I believe, a significant uh, source of income for uh, at least for someone in Lebanon, I guess. Uh, but gambling, <laughs> but gambling is uh, uh, gambling is forbidden uh, um, uh, in Islam, and uh, at least in Islamic, uh, in the interpretation that uh, um, Hezbollah gives, or, or other uh, Muslim gives, of course, and. Uh, um, uh, but still, they say, well, we didn't care very much. We oppose. We, we, we have given our opinion, uh, we, we, we have uh, provided our, you know, our opinion in this, and then the law was approved, and it's not that we abandoned the parliament or the Lebanese institutions only for this reason. Um, there are other red lines uh, in, 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 the, in, in this kind of conversation, I guess. And so what I found out is that there, there is room for, 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 for pragmatism in this, this, in, this, uh, in this process of law-making decisions. Uh, and that's how you explain the fact that also uh, legislation that was related and was determined, for example, by, uh, uh, by certain human rights, by subscriptions to certain human rights treaties, uh, was either approved or, 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 or anyway not commented upon anyway, um, or it was only uh, minimally opposed uh, in most of the cases. So I, I, I find three main patterns of behavior with regard to human rights legislation in the parliament. One is general neutrality, which interests most of the cases I've seen, about 30, 40 laws about. Um, then there is one thing that is interesting, that in some cases, as dele- delegates in the parliament, in fact, have even participated to the works of the Human Rights uh, Commission of the Lebanese parliament to uh, obviously promote their own agenda in it, so they have a sp- particular interest, at least they did at that time, uh, in promoting the uh, security uh, and, uh, and in trying to enhance uh, the uh, living conditions of prisoners uh, in Lebanese jails. And they've done so by uh, participating to the works of the, of the Lebanese uh, Human Rights Committee in the parliament. And so that, that from neutrality then shift to even proactive uh, behavior in support of certain norms and using the vocabulary and the language of human rights for their own political interests mostly. And then, and I have to be, and I, and I can't deny this even though it uh, may detract from the validity of my argument, there are still instances in which, however, Hezbollah and also other uh, Islamist conservative groups within the Lebanese government, uh, the Lebanese parliament, uh, have opposed human rights legislation. And this happens in most of the cases, at least I, I, I have noticed, this happens with regards to women's rights. This is undeniable. In uh, Lebanon, there has been, at the time I was doing research, uh, um, uh, the, the, main, uh, um, the, the main debate on women's rights was related to uh, the legislation concerning the uh, criminalization of so-called honor killing uh and uh, and when i asked about this uh, uh to to this uh, to this mp in the in the parliament uh, he has given me some some juridical explanations and so on i mean it's, which i couldn't uh, which with which i couldn't agree fully but the bottom line was like we we're not we we're, we're going to oppose that kind, that kind of legislation which will criminalize honor killing then another debate in lebanon taking place with in that respect and it's still taking place i believe uh it's with regard to uh domestic violence and there, the official stance, there are declarations by uh, Naim Qasem, which is as, well as number two. Uh, there, the official stance is that this kind of matter does not, be, does not belong to the parliament or to state legislation, it belongs to uh, religious courts. Um, you should see this more in a broader uh, perspective, in the sense that all Arab countries, I believe, well, I think all of them, uh, they have personal status law and, and religious courts operating with regard to what we call private law, at least. And, uh, and Islamist movements tend to protect the uh, capacity of, of, of religious authority to rule specifically on that uh, on that sector of, of legislation. And this is something that also in the case of Hezbollah applies fully. Um, and then the third aspect uh, was there, w- there was a public uh, a civil society campaign for the lifting of the reservation on CEDAW, uh, the uh, convention... Uh, uh, on the elimination of all discrimination against women I hope I, I, hope I said that correctly uh, and uh, for which Lebanon and all Arab countries have, have some very heavy reservations and, and also in this respect Hezbollah's position was, was highly critical um, a very very interesting run by the way I, haven't, I don't mention this in detail in my book but uh, they basically they, 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 they established for example a Facebook group that was uh, critical of those civil society organizations in Lebanon that were trying to campaign for their abolition of reservations on Cido and so on. But then again, uh, the bottom line also in this case is that by being progressively socialized in state institutions and Islamist movements that in theory should be based on on a pure interpretation of of the Islamic uh, uh, rule and Islamic uh, principle instead interact with these norms and progressively uh, becomes influenced also by these norms. Uh, there are two other cases, uh, but, I, but my time is, uh, is, um, is running fast, so I will, I will try to be uh, as quick as possible, also because uh, uh, I very much value uh, any comments or questions that you may have. Um, the third case that I analyzed regards the negotiations and implementation of two UN Security Council resolutions, uh, 1559 and 1701. 1559 is uh, from 2004, and 1701 is uh, from 2006. Um, and here we are again. The case is somewhat similar to the one before, but uh, there is one major uh, difference. As, Balla, as as I was telling in 1992, becomes part of the parliament. Well, in 2005, after the withdrawal of, uh, the, in theory, withdrawal of Syria from Lebanon, uh, um, it, it, the need to participate in the political process becomes even more urgent in, t- in the attempt to control the effects. Uh, that the uh, departure of Syria may have on the domestic politics of Lebanon and so Hezbollah becomes even a part, a part of government with some delegates of Hezbollah or at least people that has been delegated by Hezbollah to take part to uh, the government uh, in 2005 uh, up until now in fact so their involvement in political institutions it becomes even higher and within this political institution, and as part of government, they become involved in the implementation processes and the negotiations of uh, UN Security Council Resolution. And in particular, I look at these two because they are particularly, uh, I find them particularly interesting. But what I claim in this case is that this process of, of negotiations and implementation, this process of interaction, on one hand, gives to Hezbollah the capacity to shape the outcome of this resolution to an extent, so for example 1701 was supposed to be completely different from how it is now uh, 1701, 1701 is the resolution uh, that um, calls for the ceasefire after the July war in 2006 um, and, and, and Hezbollah uh, with its role in the government uh, and, and also basically blackmailing the other uh, members in the Lebanese government uh, was capable of, of coming to a solution that was at least to an extent favorable to its own interests but also had to accept Uh, um, decisions from the UN Security Council that were highly detrimental to its own interest. So, for example, the UNIFIL mission, the one I mentioned before, the UN Peacekeeping Mission in South Lebanon, uh, was reinforced in its military capacity. And even more interesting, uh, the Lebanese Armed Forces, for the first time uh, ever, were deployed on the border between Lebanon uh, Lebanon and Israel. Uh, and there is an implicit acknowledgement of the principle that uh, the, 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 the monopoly of force within a state should be uh, in, the the, in the hands of the state itself, which is a major point uh, for Hezbollah, which is, however, a paramilitary organization, of course. Uh, and it's something that they never accepted before, but now... Through the implementation of 1701, they had to accept, also because otherwise the, uh, the July War would have probably lasted uh, even longer and they probably would not have been able to uh, sustain that any further than that. And, and so I look at this interaction and I look at how uh, uh, these, these norms fundamentally, you know, the, the, the progressive uh, normalization to an extent of, of, of state. Hezbollah relations uh, not only change the state, not only changes uh, uh, Lebanon's stance in the Security Council, but also uh, uh, changes Hezbollah to an extent because it has to, uh, uh, to live up to the expectations that this resolution creates, which Hezbollah has, in fact, uh, uh, contributed to create itself. Um, And another uh, interesting uh, observation that that, that can be made in this context is that if you read uh, Hassan Nasrallah's declaration in this context, you will see that he progressively, uh, let's say increasingly in in its discourse, makes reference not only to Islamic principles to justify its actions and the actions of Hezbollah and so on and so on, but also, for example, claim that Israel is committing crimes against humanity. Uh, or that the civilian, targeting civilians is, uh, is, is, is a crime and so on. So the reference, and that's what I called in my book a, a shift in the paradigm of legitimacy, in the sense that the legitimacy of Hezbollah's action is not only based uh, anymore exclusively on Islamic principles but also progressively make an instrumental use of international law and international norms as, as a way to justify certain decisions or as a way to denigrate the enemy. Uh, and that's important because it's it's a way to uh, um, it's, it's a way again to to show a, a degree of influence of international norms that was unprecedented until then at least. And then the last case, and in the last case uh, um, uh, that I that I discuss, I, I also changed methodology. Uh, to an extent in the sense that rather than doing process tracing which is basically what I do in these three other uh, cases uh, I basically propose a a comparative analysis of the uh, uh, language and vocabulary that Hezbollah uses in its political discourse Um, I look again at the 1995 uh, uh, open letter which I mentioned before so the very traditional one, the one that has a lot of Khomein in it, uh, in which religious, uh, religion is a, is a little bit everywhere, uh, and the Quran is quoted here and there, uh, and people is seen primarily through their affiliations to a certain religious community. Uh, there is very few reference to the Lebanese. Uh, there is a lot of reference to the Maronites, the Kataib. Uh, the Muslims, the Sunnis, the Imam, and so on. So the the person is is individually, uh, specifically with reference to their to their uh, religious identity, uh, and more commonly at least. Whereas the other documents that I look at is the 2009 political document of Hezbollah, which is which is a weird document. I think they forgot about it, by the way. But uh, it's, it's, it's a document that basically is a, is a manifesto of what is the political ideal now for Hezbollah in Lebanon or at least then in 2000 and now maybe, maybe now that changed their mind but uh, if you look at it uh, you will see that the whole highly religious uh, vocabulary language is somehow fading uh, and you see that for example the word citizen or the word Lebanese comes up like tens and tens of times in a document that is 20 or 30 pages long uh, um, and then you look at the vocabulary that they use, uh, and you will see that words like democracy uh, and freedom and rights and refugees and, again, crimes against humanity, and then there is a condemnation of, uh, uh, um, of, of, of Guantanamo uh, detention system and so on. So all this kind of vocabulary somehow becomes constitutive of the language of Hezbollah. And, and, and somehow it doesn't replace the religious reference but it's still uh, it becomes relevant to an extent uh, within that context and through this kind of vocabulary analysis, comparative vocabulary analysis I try to further corroborate, corroborate or validate my claim that international norms do have an effect on how Hezbollah uh, um, basically transform its identity uh, in this uh, 10, 20, uh, even 30 years at this point um, and I go to conclusions, and 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 basically, what what I I go back to, to the beginning and to the main to the main three claims that I uh, that I made uh, um, at the beginning as the as the core claims of my of my research. Um, but based on these four examples, therefore, um, I trace a process of mutation in Hezbollah's political identity, whereby international norms have an impact on its way of conceiving Islamist politics, and in particular on how. Islamism conceived community and person. So one core aspect that I think I, I, I've, I've at least tried to, to demonstrate or, or to validate is that international norms have the effect of informing a conception of the person that is not only characterized by its local communitarian affiliation but increasingly incorporates a sense of universal membership which identifies persons independently from their more uh, particular and localized self. So, for example, in 1996, uh, with the events that I described, we have seen that the norm of non-combatant immunity has changed how Hezbollah sees Israeli to an extent, Israelis, Um, and introduced basically a distinction between combatants and non-combatants that was previously uh, not as clear, at least. And then similarly, if you look at the analysis uh, of the legislation related to human rights uh, uh, in the Lebanese parliament, this shows that uh, an Islamist movement may try to, may, may basically opens up its consideration uh, of the person not only with regard to uh, the rights of Muslims but also basically adopting a vocabulary or, or accepting some form of legislation that to an extent, uh, at least in theory, they should be valid for all humans. Uh, and so, uh, moving on, Uh, not only the concept of person, but as a consequence also the way the community is conceived, uh, somehow changed. So I've tried to show that international norms have the effect of producing a sense of community that is not that of an alien moral moral entity, uh, which must develop its own political and social institutions, necessarily in opposition to more general and perhaps universal norms. Instead, the moral community, and in this case in particular the, 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 the Shia Islamic community of Lebanon, uh, by interacting with international norms, can find ways of harmonizing its moral standis, st- stances and its related political institution within a broader normative framework. Think again of the example i given of, of how Hezbollah has adapted uh, to forms of legislation that do not, do not belong naturally to the uh, Islamic tradition. So the interaction of Islamist politics with international normative structure can produce the outcome of an increasing uh, integration of certain Muslim groups within international society instead of becoming an alternative to it. And therefore, Islamist political groups may acknowledge at least in part the validity of certain international norms on the basis of this process of transition and the influence of international norms in this context. So what I try to show is that uh, within the metamorphosis uh, from the 1985 Hezbollah and the 2009 Hezbollah, uh, also, but not only, international norms do play an influential role in shaping the trajectory of, the, of transformation of Hezbollah's identity. This brings me to the third and concluding point of my research. The transformation of Hezbollah is a result of a process of partial and still incomplete uh, socialization of an Islamist movement in international society. By this I mean that international normative principles have become increasingly constitutive of Hezbollah's political identity. But this is a rather standard consideration from the point of view of constructivist I.R. theory. Uh, Much constructivist theory has already highlighted in in various respects how political actors can develop norm-conformist behavior when under the pressure of international political processes, not only with with reference to uh, Islamism, but in general. So what I hope to add Uh, to this kind of constructivist consideration of of international relations, is that international norms not only can produce a a norm-conformist behavior, but also carry with them an important assumption of how we should conceptualize persons and the extent to which local communities, more localized or particular communities, are important in legitimizing political institutions that can be, to an extent, at least universal or more, more universally recognized. Now, some of you and I, and I and and I would be happy to discuss this uh, further because I, I received previous criticism in this respect. You know, you may think, oh, this is this is just a this is just a form of cultural hegemony and this is an, is, uh, is unacceptable. Of course, It may criticize by itself. I think it's an interesting view, and I'd be happy to discuss this further in case. But for now, I think that the only, the only thing I, w- I would be satisfied with in general is that at least I have persuaded some of you uh, that international norms can play a moderate but still fundamental role in creating a common ground between diverse and often conflicting uh, moral and political views, including the, re- the radical views of an Islamist movement like Hezbollah. So I thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your comments.
0: Thank you, Filippo. And uh, just to say we have um, 40 minutes until 8 o'clock, I'd like to take questions in turn, um, one question at a time. And please keep your questions short and uh, declare at the beginning your name and your affiliation. So thank you. Yes, you can start. So just wait for the mic, though.
1: Thank you.
2: you you
3: mentioned that um, Hezbollah was meant prepared to take account of international norms and yet the, you can always find a basis in any religious movement for reconciling it with the tradition so, my question is to what extent is there a fiat by the clerics on en- any um, movement that the legislators might be considering? So, how powerful, in effect, is Sheikh Nasrallah in determining the, the rate at which um, the, the progress, or however you like to call it, may take place?
0: Can I have your name, please? Many years ago. Thank you. Yes. Should
1: we? Turn? Yes. One um, more. Yeah, if I, if I understand your question correctly, sorry, there was a little bit of noise, but I think um, no. I mean, I, I, I think the role of Saeed Nasrallah is, is um, absolutely fundamental in uh, within Hezbollah in the decision making process. Um, decisions uh, within Hezbollah, as far as we know, are taken uh, within the Majlis al-Shura, especially, which is uh, the top. Um, uh, group uh, at, the, at the top of the hier- hierarchy in the organization of the party, uh, which is composed by a variable number of members. I think now there are seven or eight. Uh, but uh, and Nasr- Nasrallah acts as the secretary general there. Um, but yeah, I think I think his role is is, is fundamental. And um, I mean, the dichotomy between clerics and, and non clerical persons within the Shia tradition is. Uh, is somewhat not entirely convincing uh, in, in this respect at least uh, because all Shias in theory um, at least are supposed to find a marja uh, which then they follow as muqallid, The marja taqlid is in that sense and that, that applies also to the kind of obedience uh, that the members of Hezbollah or the supporters of Hezbollah may have to the decision of their own marja now Nasral is not a marja by the way uh, because he never finished the studies uh, in the uh, in the in the houses in the, in, in Iraq or uh, on Iran, um, but still uh, the the decision of Hezbollah still are, are anyway submitted to the ruling of of of, uh, uh, of Marja, in particular, uh, in, at least in some cases by the ruling of the Ayatollah uh, of the Islamic Republic in Iran. Then, an interesting details that, that I that I found interesting myself and that I found recently is that not all uh, members of Hezbollah necessarily adopt as a marja uh, the al Fakih of Iran, but they may have other marjas uh, in Iraq, for example, uh, or uh, up until when uh, uh, Grand, at- Grand Ayatollah Muhammad Hussein Fadlallah in Lebanon was leaving, they may follow his uh, uh, ruling as a marja as well. Uh, but generally, uh, the rulings uh, with, with regard to this decision of Hezbollah of were relatively consistent, at least from those uh, marjas. Then, uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, um, the
0: gentleman at the back there. Your name, please, and affiliation. Uh,
3: my name is Ahmed Ahmed. I'm an international, stu- international relations student at Queen Mary. First and foremost, uh, Doctor, I'd like to thank you for a very insightful discussion. Um, I appreciate that Hezbollah has had to act in a pragmatic way and and compromise, and good credit to it. It has compromised, and it has, uh, since its establishment, reached a more diverse and a deeper, popular outreach within Lebanon and the wider region. It's become to be called the Lebanese Resistance in Lebanon, um, capital L, capital R, because it has since had a monopoly of the word resistance within the region. I just wonder to what extent recent discourse and uh, events within the Middle East region uh, has further highlighted Hezbollah's ability to attract more than just the Shia minority within Lebanon. So since the events in Syria, we've had Christian, one of the most pr- prominent Christian singers in the Middle East, Julia Butros, who doesn't wear a veil, by the way, uh, come out in a, very, in a big concert and uh, pay her gratitude to the party. We've had uh, a rise in Sunni uh, popular support for Hezbollah in the region. Um, Can you you get to the question? Yeah, yeah. Even in the recent events in which six combatants were killed by Israel, we've had uh, Orthodox Jews actually come to South Beirut, the headquarters of of the Lebanese resistance, and pay their respect. Um, To what extent has Hezbollah ceased to exist? As a Shia Islamist party and into a Lebanese resistance
1: against Israeli
3: aggression.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: Um, yeah, okay, thank you. This is, this, uh, this is really complex. Um, uh, um, now, did the, the the, the popularity of Hezbollah beyond uh, its own you know, normal uh, uh, constituency of the Shia community of Lebanon uh, has been uh, growing massively, uh, especially uh, after 2006 uh, with, the, with the July War. Uh, and that was probably the peak of it. Um, then uh, things got more complicated after that, uh, especially with the uh, May unrest in Beirut in 2008, uh, which, is, which it was a rather puzzling case for, for the Lebanese but generally uh, for, the, for the Arab public uh, because it was uh, one of the first times in which Hezbollah's weapons were used at least to an extent uh, uh, and they were not the only ones of course uh, also um, within uh, the uh, Lebanese domestic context and that has probably uh, played a detrimental role to the popularity of Hezbollah. Uh, then came the Arab Spring or the Arab uprising of 2011 and so on and that I agree with the analysis that was made at the time that the real losers at that point in 2011 and 2012 were groups like Hezbollah, Hamas and so on which have been for uh, um, years and years uh, calling for you know, resistance, change and so on and they were somehow immediately uh, overtaken by uh, the popular uprising that were taking down and I believe at that point their popularity was at the very bottom uh, the intervention of Hezbollah in Syria uh, also uh, uh, is highly controversial. You've been using the word resistance in many respects, but um, at least in, in, in terms of uh, uh, international law, uh, defining Hezbollah as a resistance movement after 2000 with the withdrawal of Israel, even though I'm aware that Israel did not withdraw and try entirely from Lebanon, uh, is controversial. Uh, and with the intervention of Hezbollah in Syria, defining a, a resistance movement again, uh, it, it's it's extremely difficult uh, uh, because it, that would be what would be resistance in a country that is not your country, or you know, it gets it gets complicated in that sense. Um, and uh, uh, and also in that sense, I have the impression that, uh, that that has affected the popularity of Hezbollah. You mentioned a couple of examples, and and that might be very well the case. I've seen a, a, a one or two. Uh, a surveys in Dahi and, uh, and and elsewhere, uh, which were saying that yes, Hezbollah is perceived as uh, at least now as a increased uh, as as a factor of increased security within Lebanon because it's keeping the um, you know the, the Salafi groups uh, to an extent out uh, of Lebanon to an extent. Uh, but it was also drawn Lebanon more into the conflict itself, and that's not something that makes many Lebanese at least happy about it. So its, it's, it's popularity is, is very much debated at this point. And the service that I've seen, I don't, I don't think they're, they're, they're very reliable, but in general they highlight the fact that yes, Hezbollah still has a, a degree of popularity, but, uh, uh, but not as much as it did like in years as 2006 and 2007.
0: Okay, next question. There was a question over there. Sorry, Sandra, (laughs)
4: keeping you on your toes. Thank you very much. My name is Irena Kaluso. I'm an IR student here at uh, the LSE. I have a couple of questions. First of all, you mentioned that uh, Hezbollah is using reference of international law, and you say that it's a sort of proof of acceptance. My question is that, you know, we have the UN Council of Human Rights where countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and and, and Libya using uh, human rights uh, or notion of human rights, and I I don't think that the situation there is changing, so that's one question. Second thing is you mentioned that Hezbollah recognized monopoly of power of the state. Does it mean that uh, Hezbollah may really give up its military wing? Uh, the, another question, you know, Hezbollah is one of the most dangerous terrorist organizations, at least considered by, by some security organizations. So, uh, you know, it's responsible for terrorist attack in Burgas and, and it's you know, a constant threat to the Jewish community in Europe, communities in Europe. So how does it reconcile with your... Idea And the last thing, if you were an Israeli prime minister, would you decide That's to four questions, invest yes. money to Iron Dome in the north, or you would say we don't need it? Sorry, I I this last an, one I couldn't... If you were an Israeli prime minister, would you uh-huh. invest money to Iron Dome? Uh, to I would
1: invest money in the Iron Dome. I th- I think to the north, I think or would you
4: say we don't need it anymore? Thank you very or, much. Or what? Or we we don't need it anymore. Okay, okay. Thank you very much.
1: All right, Uh, so the first question with regards to the Human Rights Council. I I I think, you know, I see your point. Uh, Yes, human rights are being instrumentalized and the Human Rights Council has been instrumentalized by... you know, countries with an awful human rights record you were saying Pakistan and, and and Saudi Arabia and so on. I experienced this myself because I've been acting as as, a, as an NGO observer at the Human Rights Council for for, for, for a few weeks once and, and I've seen that myself I, I agree with that but uh, it's a comparison, it's a little bit different because the Human Rights Council is an institution which um, technically only states sit and so on and so. It's, it's a different, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree on the analogy itself but uh, um, and still, I would also claim that even when you are using the human rights language in, in, in an instrumental way, then progressively this use nonetheless locks you in in that kind of logic in, in, in any case anyway. So you start using it, you start using it instrumentally. But then people gets back to you and ask you, so, so you were claiming this with this with regard to this and that, and so people start with you know do you've you got double standards and so on, and that progressively then snowballs and produce processes of socialization there's is, there is quite a lot of literature on this, so I'd be happy to uh, discuss this further um, uh, there was a you know the prime minister uh, uh, that uh, uh, sorry, was it Iron Dome or, or not? Uh, I was, I'm, I'm happy for, if you know, it's the Iron Dome to me is it's passive defense, uh, at least it's not, it's not necessarily uh, um, aggressive or dangerous for the neighbors of Israel, so for me, you know, they, they can invest as much as they want in the Iron Dome. It's, uh, it's, where, it's, where, it's when they go and they target uh, a, a, an Iranian general across the border and, and, and a chief commander of Hezbollah, uh, th- that seems to me an unnecessary provocation to an extent and, and couldn't really see what was the strategic rationale of that choice and uh, and and that 's not the iron dome that 's offensive action it 's different um, and then what, what, that's, that's, I forgot to tell as why. Oh, Burgas. Oh, yes, the Sla- uh, Sla- Sla- S- Bola, big, big terrorist organization. Uh, all right, so in, me, in, my, in my book, at least, is, uh, I, I, I refrain from using the, the label of terrorism, as much as I'm concerned with using uh, the label of resistance uh, just freely like this anyway. Uh, I, I find it. I find it politicized. Uh, um, there is no international definition of, of terrorism and, and terrorist organization that is fully accepted. Uh, and uh, and and with regard to the responsibility of it, of Hezbollah, whether whether it's responsible for Burgas or or or, or the uh, what was um, the bombings in Buenos Aires was in 92 or 94? Sorry, for, for 94. Uh, of 94, which by the way, recent events are also fascinating in that respect. And so on. Uh, simply, I, I don't have access to intelligent sources, I haven't carried out uh, um, this, I, I, would, I wouldn't know where to start in, in making the claim that Hezbollah is uh, effectively operating in that sense, it's, it's, it's just beyond my capacity in that sense, so I simply refrain to use terrorism as, a catego- as an analytical category uh, uh, in, in, my, in my books It's simply because I don't find it useful from, from a social science point of view
0: Okay uh, shall we have the gentleman at the back over there
2: Hi Doctor, thank you for your time. Um, I'm Hani Abidi, I'm an undergraduate at Durham University. I just wanted to ask whether you see Hezbollah's involvement in um, the Syrian conflict um, as, a major, as a major setback in the transformation that you speak about?
1: Well, the short answer is, is, is fundamentally yes. Uh, it has been an, an, an adaptation to a, a, a profoundly changing regional context in that sense. Um, and I don't think will uh, we'll be um, um, helpful for the kind of process of transformation that I've been describing in my book in that sense. Uh, it will be interesting, whether, whenever this will be possible, to see uh, the kind of warfare uh, in which well has engaged in this context, what extent, for example, they have refrained from... Uh, um, you know, undiscriminate violence uh, uh, and, and the targeting of civilians or non-civilians and so on. Uh, it's also interesting to notice, I believe, and, and I'm not 100% sure, but my sense, uh, and, and I believe this is, um, I think this is actually quite easy to demonstrate, but my sense that Hezbollah is involved in a Syrian conflict, but it has never justified this as, as, a, as a jihadi mission, mission as, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know. Uh, Simply because it's fighting against other Muslims, and this, uh, from from the perspective of of, and the justification of of just war in uh, in 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 Islam, is 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 extremely hard to justify, as far as uh, as far as I can tell, at least. Um, But then again, I guess I guess this this is something that would require way more uh, investigation. These are only hypotheses to begin with.
0: There was another question. Yes. Yes. And then if you could pass it on to over there,
5: yeah. please. Hi, my name is Stanislas. I'm with uh, halt, Business, uh, halt International Business School. Uh, my question is regard, with regards to, um, uh, you, you mentioned the, the adoption of uh, uh, international um, principles, if you will, into um, um, Hezbollah, especially with regards to the parliament. Um, do you also feel that there is some rejection or a counter uh, reaction to um, these um, these international principles uh, that you mentioned uh, should help moderate um, and if so which which ones do you consider uh, to be a, a counter reaction if you will to those
1: so, so you're basically asking so what what is, um, is, it, is it, what What kind of criticism has Hezbollah made of international norms to an extent? Well, yes, especially at the beginning, uh, in the early phase, uh, you will see that um, uh, Hezbollah was extremely critical of the UN in general, which he he described as as an institutional system in the hands of the hegemonic powers, uh, which is a criticism that to an extent is also uh, um, believable, of course, and and shareable to an extent, and so on. So that's uh, one aspect. Major examples of criticism uh, I came across of, of uh, international as well, I, I've already mentioned the fact that gender, gender equality and gender parity is, to an extent, at least problematic to some extent, uh, or even though the conversation is way more sophisticated than we generally expect, at least for the kind of uh, conversations that I had. Um, and then there is another interesting case I came across with regard for religion for example with religious defamation uh, um, I remember when there was the um, so called scandal of the um, offensive YouTube video that was uh, released on the, on the, on, the, on on Islam and the prophet and so on and Nasrallah came out with a, a, a harsh declaration condemning of course the video and also saying if there are international norms that forbids uh, the uh, um, for example the um, the uh, the, the, the denigration of the Holocaust uh, or the protection of the Jewish identity, then there should be international norms also that protect entity, uh, and the sanctity uh, of, of Islam and so on and so on. So that would be another case of, of criticism to what extent. But overall, I mean, uh, they, they didn't buy the whole thing uh, anyway, and they are critical in selective ways, and they, they do make a lot of instrumental use of those norms, you know cherry picking what actually serves best their interests and, and so on. Yes. Uh, My name is Marian I'm an
5: undergrad at the University of Westminster Um, My question concerns that you earlier um, told us about a shift in the discourse uh, of Hezbollah, and uh, I was wondering that um, uh, what's the discourse uh, just for instrumental reasons to gain more support from the international community basically because a more worldly human rights based view sells better than um, something more spiritual Um, if the, if that's the case, uh, or no, if that's not the case, and if there was actually a real change going on, change of identity going on in the party, where do the members um, that were more religiously orientated, where did they go after that? Mm. Um, and did they maybe, um, I don't know, I'm asking you, uh, go to ISIS or felt a connection that they may be better off in 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 that region? I'm not saying ISIS is uh, Hezbollah or something, but I'm just saying that people.
1: Um, might have uh, made the trip. I'm not saying
5: that. I
1: just want to know. Um, yeah, uh, then, no, no they, definitely, they definitely didn't go to ISIS, uh, simply yeah. because they're, they're, But I, I, got, I got your point. Um, no, there is one case that is interesting that perhaps answers your question, which is the case of Subi Tufeli, uh, um who, who was, uh, for a little while, Secretary General of Hezbollah, so he was a leading member, uh, and then he, he, he left Hezbollah and uh, there is no clear explanation of why uh, he left Hezbollah, um, or not, not an uncontroversial one. But one of the reasons that is usually given is uh, that he didn't agree with the fact that Hezbollah would run for elections uh, in 1992 for the Lebanese parliament. Um, and so there you have a case of what you say. Well, there, if there is a hardcore uh, Islamist group within Hezbollah that is even more hardcore than what is the average group uh, uh, then, then, where is these people? Well, this is, this will be one case, uh, and then the other case is that Hezbollah is is, is extremely cohesive and, and unified organization, um, and therefore. Um it's hard to see the internal uh, uh, forms of, of disagreement that there might be, but there certainly are to an extent. Um, and, but, but it's just that the, the organization is so uh, well organized in terms of propaganda as well that it's very, it's very difficult to see who, who is disagreeing with what uh, at that point.
0: Can I, can I just make a, a point that uh, we tend to think um, of international norms in terms of values, but international norms, in my mind at least, are also about what works in the sense of the rules of the game that are devised in the interactions between states. Uh, uh, and these rules of the game are not necessarily what is the, sort of, the, the best thing to do in terms of a value system, but in terms of how to uh, regulate relationships for the long term. So there is, a, there is an element of pragmatism in international norms as well and i think that is apparent from this research that we actually see not a clear line between the values and the in- interests but possibly emerging uh, between the two in some cases when it comes to Hezbollah more broadly this is a this is a study in in degrees and sort of it it's a it's a nuanced process i think that what you're trying to to, to describe as opposed to simply saying uh Hezbollah has moderated its stance. Clearly, this is not the case always, and for a variety of reasons, they've taken steps in one direction but not in others. But the point of the exercise, in my mind as well, is to show that international norms provide also a common language, the concepts that are then um, uh, adopted in a local situation which previously may have had nothing to do with them and then the concepts which are empty shells to some degree are filled with a meaning which may become a bit more sort of um, maintain a coming together to a degree not 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 completely but to a degree and in some cases
1: yeah no i mean it's it's I don't want to get this. This this gets rather technical, and I don't don't want to be. um, I don't want to abuse the patience, of course, of of our audience. But, uh, but yes, the definition of international norms that I use, for example, is the one that is uh, uh, given by Marvin Frost. Uh, And basically, his claim is that international norms is something uh, that you realize as a norm uh, only when it's broken. Uh, In the sense, uh, that a norm is is such when people ask you an account of why you haven't done this and that. That means that, that that this and that is in fact a norm. Uh, so why you kill civilians? Uh, but no one would really question of why uh, you have shot you, you have shot to a soldier that that is carrying a weapons because that's uh, that's accepted in international norm and in uh, and in use uh, uh, in and uh, uh, the laws of wars and so on. Mm-hmm. So, so it's so it's rather pragmatic in this sense. Uh, and and I do and I do refer to those concepts in that sense in my in my research.
0: Okay, we have two questions at the back. Uh,
1: Hello, I'm Michael Skinner. I'm a student at King's College London. Um, What, if anything to your mind, do the um, developments in Hezbollah with regard to international norms um, have to do, or what do the developments have with respect to um, the relationship with uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran? With, with reference to Hezbollah in particular? Or to, with to, reference to Hezbollah in particular, and the, to what extent do the developments in Hezbollah reflect developments within their relationships with, with yes. the public? Yes, uh, that, that's an interesting question. And um, uh, One thing that I try to do in, in, my, in my book is is somehow to question, to an extent, uh, the, uh, the strength of the connection between uh, Iran and Hezbollah, because I don't think it's as obvious as it's usually conceived. Uh, uh, in much of the literature at least um, in, in, in political theory terms and in terms of Islamist theory for example I emphasize the fact that um, much of the intellectual background that is relevant for Hezbollah is not uh, exclusively related to Iran but in fact comes from South uh, Iraq and the uh, Shia political tradition of Iraq and has al Islamiyah and Bakir al-Sadr again as I mentioned and so on and I, and I think this is a very neglected story uh, which has been told however very very well by Falehab al-Jaber in, uh, in, uh, uh, in a very good book uh, published by Saki Books um, and this is, would be one answer. And then there is a the more pragmatic aspect. So how much Iran is actually uh, using Hezbollah as a puppet? In, uh, you know, it's as close to Lebanon, it's close to Israel, uh, it is, and so on. Well, this, this is obviously to, to, to a great extent, at least. And, 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 uh, but that doesn't mean that everything that Iran says is uh, always uh, fully accepted by Hezbollah. There are a few, exa- there are a few examples. One is that... Uh, um, uh, for example, in 2008, there was Operation Castlet in Gaza, and Iran apparently has released a declaration says, oh, you know, Hezbollah, you should intervene uh, directly into this conflict, open another front, and so on. And Hezbollah fundamentally said no. This is what uh, Josef Falaga, for example, reports uh, in one of his studies. Um, and then uh, um, and then there are other, um, you know, specific, again, it's difficult. Again, it's rather difficult to, but then, you know, to answer your question, a defect Uh, that as well as taking part to uh, elections at that time, I think, if I recall correctly, that was the time in which uh, 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 Khatami was in power in in Iran. So So somehow there is... Uh, a, a, you know, the more moderate wing the, you know, the rise to power of more moderate wings within Iran may have effects also on the kind of choices that Hezbollah takes uh, make uh, in Lebanon as well to that extent so, so that, my, my sense is that a, a radical change in Iran as it may or may not happen with the new uh, with, the, with the Rouhani's government may have some implications also for Hezbollah to an extent that's, uh, that's something I would, I would be interested to see I can only make an hypothesis about it but I can uh, uh, but I would be interested to see whether it actually holds in the future
3: Hi, Tom Kerner. a master's student of international affairs here at LSE. Quick question for you about your research: Uh, Did you happen to find out, or get any sense, a better sense of who actually may have authored the 1985 open letter? Now, there's some speculation Mm. that it might Um, have been related to Iran.
1: Uh, Who may have authored, like, written it? Like, well, I, what I know is that large, large bits of it are, are in fact quotation from from Khomeini itself. uh, exactly, who, is, uh, who would be the author? I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to say. There is uh, there is a video on YouTube uh, in which there is a, a, a Nasrallah speech at the time where it was only a, a member of Hezbollah, not the Secretary General, uh, in which there are interestingly uh, lo- uh, long bits of his speech that are basically quotations from that letter. Um, now I don't know whether it's because he's reading the letter, or because it was, you know, maybe one of the authors who was involved in the drafting on it, uh, uh, and then and then it was then capable of coordinating properly. But uh, but then I'm afraid I don't, I don't have a proper, you know, full answer to your question.
0: Okay. Any other questions? Here. It's uh, sorry. Over there. Yeah. Thank you.
2: It's okay, I'll do
0: it's coming, anyways.
2: Okay. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Andy Scott. I work at the Home Office. Um, essentially, um, the previous impression I had of uh, the way in which uh, Islamist societies and uh, international politics interacted uh, interacted was that um, they kind of shut themselves down as a response to the development of international humanitarian law, and instead, they're kind of real. Influence of, you know, the kind of Western tradition was the more and westphalian one where they kind of reinforced the state's sovereignty to, um, I suppose, kind of divert criticism for, you know, human rights abuses, which was coming from elsewhere. But um, I suppose this talk has um, challenged that a bit. So I was just wondering to which extent uh, you'd say my uh, notion is uh, absolute rubbish. <laughs> given that it was just something I told and thought, oh, that makes sense. I won't bother checking
1: to see if it's the case. So, so let me see. So basically, says so you're saying, trying to summarise what I'm trying to say, so it's basically Hezbollah endorsing or somehow interacting with the idea of, an, of a Westphalian international system. Yeah, is that, is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah, no, fundamentally. I mean, again, it's, uh, I, it's I, I. I feel... I feel I shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, be that. Uh, you know, I shouldn't make such a such a su- superficial statement in, that, in the sense that I try to be a little bit more sophisticated in my research. But then, fundamentally, uh, that, that, that that would be something you, you, you could say on the basis of what. So fundamentally, well Yes it's increasingly exposed to the to the influence of those norms of a Westphalian system of an international society. If you're more, uh, uh, you know, it's less than a realist, but more of an English school or constructivist. Uh, uh, then, uh, yes, uh, th- those norms progressively gain traction within the decision making process of Hezbollah of as a political actor. That, that's um, something I would uh, roughly agree with.
0: Okay, yes, one more over
5: there. Hi, my name is Hitesh Gardian, I'm at Imperial College London. I find it interesting that in our talk about Hezbollah engaging with the international society and the United Nations, you've not given us your thoughts on the special Lebanese tribunal after the post
1: Rafik Hariri assassination yeah. and Hezbollah's disruption in that investigation what are your thoughts on that yeah that's that's a that's a, that's a very uh, um, that's a very smart question and i addressed that at the, at the beginning of my book um, so why 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 it's, you know legendary leg- leg- so why of all the cases you've selected why you didn't get for example the STL uh, you know, major international institution uh, that interacted directly with Hezbollah and Esbale has outrightly uh, um, denied uh, any form of collaboration with this institution. Uh, true, I think. I think if you would be working on, on a PhD or on a research that basically try to make the arguments, you would have you would you would have a, a way to at least undermine some aspects of my research by saying, "But look, the STL uh, is a case in which there is no cooperation." Uh, and then on the other hand. Um, as I've been thinking this through myself. When I look at the STL and I, and I think of international norms, uh, my idea is that the STL is, is one of the most bizarre international tribunals that has been established uh, um, since the, uh, the, the origins of international criminal law uh, and so on and so on. And in fact, it's not even international tribunals. It's a special, tribu- it's a special tribunal. So it doesn't apply international law, but it applies Lebanese law, and then it makes it to an extent with international law. But then there was no definition of terrorism that uh, could be applied in this context, so they made up one, uh, uh, and uh, which is also very weird uh, in that sense. Uh, and then, uh, so I just fundamentally, using the special tribunal for Lebanon uh, as a case of an international norm uh, would be, in my opinion, somewhat. Uh, Inappropriate because the fact that it represents and enacts international norms that tribunal is, uh, is controversial. I'm not saying it's, it's illegitimate or it should not uh, do the work that it does because uh, to an extent I, I believe it can be uh, uh, useful, I guess. Uh, but, uh, um, but then it, I, I don't think it would be a good example of international, uh, of international law and application of international law at least. Or at least a very controversial one.
0: Okay, um- just to say that uh, on the 11th of February the next event of the Middle East Center is um, a presentation by Stephen Heidemann of the United States Institute of Peace who will discuss the violence now gripping the Levant and the uh, Arab East and you're all invited to this event on the 11th if you wish to attend. Uh, The other thing I want to uh, say is that uh, there are There's a small reception outside, and we uh, invite all of you to attend if you would like to stay and perhaps continue asking Filippo questions. The last part is that I want to uh, invite all of you to uh, uh, thank our speaker for uh, a very interesting, deep-thinking presentation uh, on a very difficult subject, Um, and let's do so in the usual manner. Thank you.